Okay, so I am close to my mic, so it's definitely picking me up. Ah! That's good. Okay, you're good. <laughs> Is that how you test your mic? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Don't you? Kaka! <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And today we will be diving into the 2017 Netflix original horror movie, The Babysitter, starring Judah Lewis and Samara Weaving, and directed by someone named McGee. That's yes. actually his name. What a power move to name just call yourself McGee. Oh my god, it's MacGyver. You know what else this guy directed, Zach? Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. That was like the last one they did before this weird reboot with um, Mm -hmm. Patrick Stewart. Yeah, they did it in 2003. I don't know if this one has the original cast, but I think it had Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore, Lucy Liu. Which, the first Charlie's Angels, also not a great movie. But damn, did it have some fun moments in it. I mean, Charlie's Angels is a horror movie. Oh, absolutely. And much like Charlie's Angels, this is a multi-person cast, and there are three women. So this movie follows the story of a young boy named Cole, who, when faced with the option of doing so, decides to spy on the babysitter, B that he believes is going to be having an orgy in his house while he's asleep. So little does he know that it's actually a meeting of a satanic cult that needs his blood for a secret ritual to get whatever they desire. Thus ensues a sort of pseudo-Home Alone-style chase film where you have five hot teens chasing down this young 12-year-old boy to uh, stop him before he can spread the word of what they're actually doing. How did you feel about that synopsis? Concise and accurate. I liked it. Perfect, because we're going to start this off with a game, and the name of the game is... Ooh, baby, do you know that film? Okay, the premise of the game is that I'm going to read you a synopsis of a movie with a babysitter in it, and I want you to try and guess the film. These all should be films that you know. Oh, all right. Maybe one or two you don't, but let's start. So here's the first one. After witnessing horrible events by an invisible entity on his home cameras, This family discovers a nightmarish history of their house, a coven of witches, and an invisible imaginary friend, as well as the truth that their children might be in danger. Uh, Paranormal Activity 3? You are correct! It is Paranormal Activity 3. Nice. Well done! I couldn't remember if it was 2 or 3, but... Okay, that was level 1. Level (laughs) 2. During an evening of babysitting, high school student Jill is terrorized by a caller asking, have you checked on the children lately? After calling the police, they inform her that the calls are coming from inside the house. Oh my god, why am I blanking on this right now? I said one of the words in the title three times. When a stranger calls? It's when a stranger calls! With second guessing myself, I'm like, is that what it's called? (laughs) It's what it's called, yeah. Alright, I have seen that one. All right, next one. This small town had slowly begun to forget the tragic crime until his escape. Before long, this emotionless killer became fixated on some blissfully unexpected high school students. 
While they may try to flee, the shadows are Halloween. thick. And he's what? Damn it. Yeah, of course it's Halloween. I knew that was going to come out. Yeah, it has to. All right, here's the next one. And let's see. I'm, I I have prepared for this one two quick synopses because the first one might not give it to you. The second one definitely will. Okay. All right. The events of one evening take a turn for the worst when a young boy trying to spy on his babysitter goes wrong. Well, obviously you're kind of like leading me to the babysitter. Yeah, it's the babysitter. It's the movie we watched. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how could I not get that one? (laughs) It's fresh in my mind. All right, Zach, are you ready for the last one? I don't know if you're going to get this one. This one might be the hard one. You're going to give me like some Scooby-Doo bullshit like I did last time. (laughs) Maybe. We'll see. All right. A wounded veteran is put to the ultimate test when he's charged with protecting five kids being ruthlessly hunted by masked killers after the murder of their father. After car chases, deadly traps, and a mysterious key, this orphan family discovers their father's greatest secret called ghost. I don't know. Is it? (laughs) You're laughing. You want to know what it is? Yeah, I do want to know what it is. It's Vin Diesel's The Pacifier. (laughs) Oh my god. How's that for classic? (laughs) God damn, I forgot. I've I've seen that movie more than I would like to admit. I can't remember which one of my sisters really liked it. Anyway, all of these classic babysitting movies. The fun twist in this one, of course, is that the babysitter's the big bad at the center of it all. And she straight up says that. Yeah, she says that she's the big bad. I think that that's a significant part of the film is it is so self-referential. And it's really interesting. I was having a conversation with a couple other people just about contemporary music culture. And there is sort of like this heated debate about using like a self-referential culture in music or in movies, in art in general. Is it cliche? Is it kitschy to use? Is it sort of showing the insecurity of a filmmaker to be so self-referential or like wink, wink, nod, nod at the audience. Like I'm in on the joke too. What do you think? Like to have the big bad of the movie say I'm the big bad. Yeah, that and just the, you know, the whole movie is so heavily outlining pop culture references. Like when they're doing like, who's your ideal space dream team? Or they talk about how certain villains get defeated. They've got like the scene where they're reciting a Western duel in front of that big television screen. Like it's a movie about movies where movies aren't the central plot, but they are used throughout as like an enhancement after we were done watching it, you likened it to Cabin in the Woods. And I think that that's a very good comparison, even though these two movies are very different in a lot of ways. But I think that it's almost like they are parodying the structure of your classic horror movie or classic slasher movie, but everything goes off the rails of that structure. Yeah. Because of how ridiculous things get. And it's it's almost like kind of pointing out the ridiculousness of your average slasher movie that kind of is in itself unrealistic because of how people react to certain things and i think that cole is a very relatable character he reacts to like seemingly kind of intense things like like when he first wakes up after he passes out and he's tied to the chair and he goes why is he shirtless even though it's meant as a humorous kind of tension-breaking thing it is a realistic kind of reaction to that like Mm -hmm. 
That's something that someone waking up from passing out might say. Just like that relatability to the character and to the situation. Him reacting that way is very anti-trope for a slasher movie. One of the reasons that I think that it's a great moment is because it is something that we all probably have thought while watching a horror movie before, but never Mm -hmm. actually like said out loud like why are they doing this and that is a moment in this film that is referential but not self-referential it does not point out the fact that it is a reference to something Mm -hmm. that kind of goes back to what you talked about with cabin in the woods you know i think that these two films are comparable in the fact that they are comedic films that heavily reference other horror movies Cabin in the Woods is entirely dependent on one's knowledge of the evil dead. And then surpassing that when you see all of the monsters locked away, like you can point to every single one of those monsters and you go, I know exactly what that's from. And like mm-hmm. the same thing with the lamentation configuration that's in the basement and the the music boxes and the book that they're reading. Like it's all there but no one in the movie says this this is like a horror movie whereas this movie relies i think a little too heavily on making the connection to other films for example the whole discussion around like who's your outer space combat dream team the western scene which is their like showdown thing because that parallels things that happen later on in the movie like he actually has those like you know witty one-line showdowns later on with different characters but it always points to you to the fact that look we know movies i think that moments like when he's like why is he shirtless is hilarious because it is something that is referential but it doesn't slap you in the face with the fact that it is referential yeah the intergalactic dream team or whatever they're calling it i think was like a little strange because that's one of the things that didn't really come back i mean it did like in the end but it was like this cheesy it'd be me and you you didn't say we yeah like yeah i get it it was weird how they used that and they made it seem like it was going to be this big thing like in the end of something is going to happen like dialogue wise Mm -hmm. that's like really big and it wasn't it was like oh yeah that's the same thing with the like reference of i'm the big bad which is the stereotypical movie villain as the big bad i love this movie i think that it's great and i think that the references are are really fun when they're not so obviously pointed out (laughs) that's actually something i didn't really have a problem with like the whole i'm the big bad thing Mm -hmm. that b says i kind of liked that because it kind of gave you some insight into how she thinks of herself and i think that that's kind of like if there is like a deeper meaning (laughs) to this film and i don't know that there is oh because you gotta see the sequel yeah i mean i i will i kind of have to now because i'm i'm invested because they very much set you up for the sequel but you know cole in like right before she like tucks him in, he's kind of like all teary eyed because he's he's talking about how he's weird and different and you know he doesn't really have many friends and he's teased for being a wimp and and all that stuff. And there's this clear connection between Cole and B of like they're the weird ones, you know, and they're like kind of the outcasts. And even within her cult slash friend group everyone has their place that they're fulfilling like there's the sassy black friend that's like the trope you know it's the token trope there's the meathead quarterback there's the ditzy cheerleader and then there's the dork that they end up killing right away 
And, you know, if you think about B is the one who doesn't really fit in, in that group. Yeah. You know, when they were playing like the spin the bottle thing, just the way she acts is very different from anyone else in the group. And they all kind of react to her in a very off-put way. You can tell she makes them uncomfortable in the way that she acts. So I think that she has this kind of idea of she's an outcast and she's kind of like the black sheep and that's... When she says, I'm the big bad, she doesn't say it in like a sassy, like, oh, I'm an undefeatable bad person, like kind of way. It's not like your classic villain. It's like kind of a sad way that she delivers that line. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's, that's her relating to Cole in a way. She is representative of absolute corruption and evil. In this, and he is representative of the absolute purity and innocence in the and movie, and they have that in common. Right, right, right. With them being different. Yeah, and you, you talk about B making the rest of them uncomfortable. I mean, part of it too is the other teens have not engaged in the sacrifice before, but we are led to believe B has, that she's been doing this for a long time. There's sort of an immortality angle with her that's not really fully explored. But it does, it does make mention of her being sort of this like long con. But even when she's being the cult leader, it's interesting because it's, it's almost like you can tell that she doesn't want to be. Samara Weaving, she plays the character with like a lot of pathos because she doesn't seem like she wants to engage with this and she wants cold to like not really be harmed she wants to keep him safe and protected but you can get the sense that there's some deeper reasoning as to why she is doing what she is doing and why she has to do it versus the motivations of the other like we get to see max is evil for the sake of being evil and b it almost feels like that neutral evil like she's bad but she's bad because she has to be right even when they kill sam she treats it very much as like business yeah whereas you know you look at max who's killing for fun and he takes a lot of joy from his friends dying Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's like straight up happy when cole kills when he kills sonia and he's like whoa did you just blow sonia up and he's like got a smile on his face and was like whoa this guy's a sociopath (laughs) yeah yeah and then john making a farce out of the whole thing but also is serious about it yeah i mean like he he's got really great lines but it's also what is his function in the movie because he's really he's the first one to die right He's the first of the teens, yeah. Well, I mean, besides Sam, besides... of course, who is literally just there to be sacrificed. And the cops. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, like, he's the black one, you know, like the stereotypes of... The black guy always dies first. Yeah, but since we do have Sam here, and he's, like, even nervous to kiss B in the spin the bottle game, yeah. which gives you the impression he is not very experienced, and then we can kind of glean from that that he may be a virgin. Mm-hmm. And he gets killed first. It's kind of like they're enforcing, but also denying that stereotype. I mean, the whole movie is centered around usurping the traditional stereotype because think about the typical slasher from the point of symmetry. And in fact, specifically asymmetry. It is an asymmetrical sort of situation. You have 
one killer and you have between five or six teens. In this movie, you have five killers and one survivor. So it flips the paradigm. It's a fun way to treat it while also still killing them off in a way that is fairly prototypically funny. I mean, I don't know how funny the actual deaths are, but they're very much like your normal slasher film variety. You're going to tell me that Sonya's death's not funny? Okay, that one is kind of funny. Kudos on the variety of ways that people die in this. From getting smashed by a car, even though I guess she didn't really die. You know what's funny about her having gotten struck by the car and like pinned under the car is she still looks fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) She's just got like a pose where she's like, oh wow, she looks great. If not for the car being here, like it's, it's sort of like, I don't know, weirdly over feminized or over sexualized in a way that I think is supposed to be a little bit funny and also a little bit referential. I was watching that scene and I'm just looking at how the car is supposed to have like crushed her. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so did the car chop her legs off? Or like, because it looks like the car is just gently resting on her stomach. It's It does not look like it has really done her harm. I think you're onto something. I think they prioritize that over like the functionality of what has actually happened in the scene. Mm-hmm. At first he comes out of the car and he goes over to her. And to me at first, I was like, oh, she's fine. He, he missed. <laughs> Which also would have been funny. And the way that the car, it wasn't really like resting on her stomach. It was a little lower, you know, the pelvic area mm-hmm. and i wonder if that was also intentional because you know with the, whole the loss of, like, of innocence cole, yeah and the whole thing of like cole having the hots for her the whole time is the loss of innocence <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll talk we'll talk about that in a second <laughs> jesus <laughs> but you know he has a flashback right before he starts the car up of b telling him you gotta pick what you want and go after it and like she is what he wanted so i don't know if that you know, I could be reading too much into that. But talking about the loss of innocence, I think that this is really kind of like a coming of age story. <laughs> it's more of a, a humorous coming of age story than a than a horror movie. What? He definitely loses his innocence <laughs> throughout. It's a coming of age story? Starting with him being a child afraid of getting a shot? That opening scene with the school nurse. One... Why was the school nurse giving a vaccine to children? I don't I don't understand that. They used to do they, that. Do they do like flu vaccines? I never yeah. really... I'm wondering about that because I have like a contextual memory of that being a thing, but it's also used in other horror movies. And specifically, I think it's supposed to reflect this sort of pseudo retro quality to this film because there are a lot of things that seem like dated, and then there are also a lot of things that seem not dated, like his use of the cell phone but that was one of the things where i think that it tries a little bit to obscure when this movie takes place because the use of the music too i think that the classic rock is yeah like- that was truly referential and this is a movie that is very hard to classify because it is kind of like your teen slasher movie and i think that's the skin that it has put over it but it's also a comedy it's also yeah satanic element that can be called horror oh the whole coming of age thing it's funny that you mentioned the blood because the whole reason they take his blood is because they need blood of the innocent and Mm -hmm. throughout the series of events of this film cole does lose his innocence so it makes them taking his blood in the first place kind of pointless you know what was funny to me is the moments where they have the text up on the screen. It's always Cole's face like reacting to something. Yeah. And, and then, and then it just like, has... What the 
fuck? It was an interesting way to kind of project Cole's thoughts rather than having whisper to himself like, oh, what the fuck? Can I tell you something about that, though? Yeah, sure. I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can tell. I mean, I, I didn't care for it, but I thought it was interesting it's you know it's, of, it's not something that you see a lot of it has not been done well since zombie land i don't think it was really done well in zombie land either right because zombie land was trying to do like a scott pilgrim versus the world judah lewis the guy who played cole he's a good actor he acted the part of surprise it didn't need it and i think i think the only text thing that was really necessary was the use of of the text messages. I think it was actually Netflix that originally came up with it. I believe it was first used in House of Cards. Oh, really? It's so intuitive. My thing is, I didn't like that they did it for that, like, what the fuck moment. And I didn't like that they did it for the Intergalactic Dream Team. It feels almost, in a way, a little too comic booky, And that's another way where it's, like, clearly being self-referential in a way that it didn't need to be referential. There is a certain idea of, of how to use those and how to display that sense of emotion in a way that it almost feels like it it stems from a place of insecurity. It felt like they were trying to say like, oh, we're not really sure if Judah Lewis's inner thoughts are being expressed well on his face, so we're gonna like put it up. I mean, at the end of the day, and I hate to say this because I think it is a good movie, it's entertaining, but I don't think this movie is for us. I think this movie is very much geared towards that teen audience that like slashers were originally intended for they're truly going after that target audience we like this because it's it's got those horror elements it's got those slasher elements but the finishing touches that are put on it like upbeat rock music the irreverent humor that's a little it's a little too on the nose for more mature people like we pretend we are and putting giant words up on the screen i think it's meant for a new generation of slasher fans well and that's the thing like i said i like this movie i think that it's a good movie i think that it's it's fun like you said it's enjoyable there are just certain things that i guess i also have certain tastes that are well formulated like i don't really care for text on the screen in this way like i don't care for like the the pictoriography of like showing me the characters that they're talking about like i don't need it but you're right it is sort of generational in a way because the rest of it i think is i think it's great i think that the humor is fairly good <laughs> big bird side bitch <laughs> yeah his interactions with allison remind me so much of marlon wayans in the scary movie franchise mm -hmm. who I, I believe marlon wayans plays ray like it, there is something about the way that he acted those and some of the jokes, the way he delivered them that did remind me of the scary movie brand of comedy. It's such a good one. And also I just love Brenda's character so much in the third movie when they're doing the ring parody and the well shows up on screen and the water starts coming out and she's just like, Cindy, the TV's leaking. It's so like almost deadpan, but also at a clearly higher register than her talking voice. And it's yeah. so funny God. to me for some reason. Like it triggers something within my mind. Yeah. See, that's that's the kind of humor that I'm talking. Like, even though that I don't know if that's necessarily irreverent, it's not like highly witty by any means. It's right. just the way that that's the kind of thing that our generation is like, yeah, that's funny. Because it's like this nonchalant kind of delivery and right. reaction 
to this thing that's obviously terribly wrong. There is a back and forth. And in this movie, it's a lot more one-liners. I think that the references when John's always getting blood spurt in his face. And then I think it's Allison that says, you look like Carrie. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's those kind of references that are more for, you know, the higher generation of that's what we're going to find funny. It is almost a staple of comedy horror movies to have like the absurd blood spray scenes. Yeah. You know, Dracula dead and loving it. Tucker and Dale versus evil. Uh, Cabin in the Woods definitely did Cabin that. in the Woods. <laughs> Sleepy Hollow. Oh, Zombieland. Zombieland has that too. Oh, Zombieland 2 especially, just covered. That, I think, is one of those things where it's clearly a staple of the comedy horror genre. It is referential, but the thing about this that makes it work, I think, is the ability for them to sort of riff off of it. Yeah, and I like the little things too, like the Protestant joke. Oh my <laughs> was, god. Was a great one. So good. It's so realistic. That's how 12-year-olds hear things like yeah. that. Protestant. It's close enough, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then also, like, it, very near that same part, uh, the vase falling over. And uh, yeah, so in Melanie's house, when they're, like, hiding from B, the vase vase falls over mm-hmm. <laughs> so the vase falls over cole catches it and you're like oh man that was so close and then he puts it back and it immediately falls over again that is such a great humorous moment to me again like realistically what would happen and that's yeah. a lot of the moments in this a lot of the humorous moments in this are like yeah this would totally happen and that's yeah. what makes it funny well and that's a bit that's been done in movies like rush hour that's like another comedy staple this movie it has a lot of original stuff but it relies on that contextual memory yeah as far as the humor goes i think it's kind of a mixed bag because i do feel like they were trying to appeal to a large audience at the same time as targeting a specific audience I think that's what kind of turns me off to this movie a bit. Not to mention, I'm not like, as far as horror goes, slasher... It's not your cup of tea. Right. I much prefer, like, the the paranormal. And I like slasher movies because uh, ghost movies are the only type that scare me. Paranormal activity messed me up for weeks when I first saw it. I think that's the thing, is that I like being scared. Yeah, but you're a psychopath. No, that's why people watch horror movies. You're a homophobe. You're a psychopath. You're a... (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) We're going to do this now? (laughs) I saved it for 58 minutes into the podcast, and now comes the intervention. (laughs) In episode, what is this, 32? 32, exactly. (laughs) Speaking of which, um, I, I do want to talk about one more thing, and that is... No. The, yes, we're talking about the, the, the actual satanic content of okay. this film and how much I was disappointed by it. Because in the beginning, where, where we actually see them sacrifice Samuel and they take Cole's blood and it's like, all right, we're going to see what this whole ritual is all about. We're going to find out what their motivation is. Mm-hmm. From my interpretation, it is that they have a deal with the devil that they, if they give him the blood of the innocent and a sacrificed person then they get wishes uh <laughs> like yeah a genie 
it, no, it's, it's like weird. a it's like a it's like a deal with the devil, you know? He wants to be a great yeah. musician, so he'll be a great musician. Yeah, it's just it feels like it should be for for the content of a movie rather than a song or a book. It feels like it should be more than a simple like tit for tat kind of deal. That's the big thing. It it's a cult, but it doesn't really play to the cultiness of it. Right. Satanic cults, they worship the devil to resurrect him or something or you know do do something larger than i want a career in journalism (laughs) and we don't even know what the other people's wishes are the issue that i have is also like allison to a certain degree she says i want my dream job in journalism and then cole you know he tries to kind of like talk her off the ledge and hey like if you kill me and then she goes do you think i care and he's like well if you kill me you don't get what you want all right then why is she even in this cult it's just it's just weird how they handle that that one in particular i think that the comedy behind it is that he's also just you could be a journalist without that (laughs) right it's such a low ball (laughs) deal with the devil yeah it's just so weird and the way that this satanic ritual cult idea plays out it doesn't give you enough it doesn't really have much depth and they don't they don't explain much and i feel like they do they do leave this open-ended for the sequel yeah i assume they explain a little bit more in the sequel a lot more yeah that's the thing is like just give me a little bit more and then open it up to the sequel. Yeah. Like just give me something of like cryptic line from B as to why she is doing this. There is a cryptic line from B, but you don't know it's cryptic until you see Until the, the next sequel. movie. That's the thing. They were like, this is gonna get a second movie. I think that it's another like, it's doing the horror movie trope. I think that that is another, it is playing at the stereotype of the horror movie, setting up a sequel, you know? I guess there is one, one more thing. The color in the house, each room is, it's like a little dated. And I think that's, again, one of those timeless things. But the foyer is very blue. Everything is blue. The kitchen is very green. And the living room is very yellow. <laughs> and the wallpaper is all ugly. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, again, it's like another dated kind of thing. But I think that's really to exaggerate the effects of that scene where Cole goes back into his house. And everything, it's like that scene at dawn. All the tones are muted. Everything looks like it's gray. Right. And all the bodies are gone. And it's almost like this dream state in that scene. I think that's what all the like the popping colors earlier in the movie are for, is to serve that scene that comes later. And it's, I think it's just a, kind of a nice effect. Yeah, there's a real richness to the set design that I think is neat because it. this is a really enclosed movie, but it there's nothing in it that like detracts from the film it just sort of enhances the palette a little bit because all of the color in the film for at least the first half is really vibrant and then it does the sort of traditional fast turn to to dark and spooky yeah it's good i think i have come around to liking the movie (laughs) it's definitely entertaining like i said and i said throughout this movie i'm like how is cole considered to be a dork in my opinion, he's he's a pretty cool kid, but yeah, he knows Star Trek and Alien, yeah, and Predator, and another. Yeah, how movie. is that not cool? He's a nerd. He's the everyman. Doctors hate him. When I grow up, I'm cool. 
Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And remember, never put your knives in the dishwasher. Thank you.